it's interesting how quickly stories shift. We had been in this series for, I actually lost count. I have no idea how many weeks we are into this series. We started it in July 18, remember, way back then in the summer when it was warm. We started it then, and it was the story about God's never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. And, and throughout the time, we, we encountered different things that were perhaps uncomfortable, different stories that were difficult, brothers selling another brother into slavery, God's people being end up being in slavery. And, and the whole hope is that this Messiah is going to come that's going to make everything better again. And then we see this Messiah, Jesus, come, be born to, to a virgin, to Mary. And, and then we hear all these wonderful stories about Jesus in his servant and sacrificial nature. We hear stories about him caring for people who are overlooked by society. We hear stories and we read stories and we talked about ones where where the Pharisees were like, he's hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, and this is not what you're supposed to be doing. And then it all leads up because he comes to, to Jerusalem, and there's this, this loud, raucous crowd that gathers to see him and to declare him as king and waving palm branches and putting cloaks down on the ground, and then just like that, people leave him. Stories shift quickly, don't they? In the last two weeks, we've heard of stories that shifted too quickly. People who were at a day spa, or actually multiple different day spas, having one thing in mind, relaxation, other individuals who had another thing in mind that they were grabbing necessities for their families and, and they were at their grocery store and then all of a sudden the story shifted. Too quickly the stories shifted. 18 people in the last two weeks, and, and many others, if we look into it even more, had their stories affected. Their stories ended just like that, and that affected how many more other people's stories shift so fast. Not all stories shift the way that those individuals, those 18 individuals experienced in Boulder or in Atlanta. Sometimes the stories shift just a little bit differently. Maybe it's the friend that you've had for such a long time kind of deserts you. They, they turn your back on you, don't support you anymore, and it hurts, it cuts. Shifting of a story. Shifting of a story when someone's character takes a turn for the worse. Shifting stories. Jesus experienced the shifting story. 
were people who once had his back, people that were interested in following, people that were among perhaps the 5,000 just men, even more people that gathered on the side of, of this lake to hear Jesus preach, were all of a sudden nowhere to be found. But I, I really wonder, in Jesus' case, if it was actually that quick. Because as we recalled when we were talking about all the things that Jesus did up to this point, he always was, uh, choose the right phrase, frustrating the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was always doing things that they questioned and they began to not like him. Started when, when when his disciples picked heads of grain on the Sabbath and ate them started when Jesus would heal people on the Sabbath. It started when Jesus was hanging around with the round crowd of people. It started with uh, a lady wasting so much money in their regard on anointing Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. It didn't stop there. After that, that procession of people that came into Jerusalem were Everyone was so excited about Jesus. There were other things that happened too. After Jesus heads in with the procession, other things happen. He he goes and he weeps over the city, but then he gets into the, the temple and he throws over some tables. It says that my house will be called a house of prayer, and, and he's throwing things around. And then two, all you'd see probably are just some dead branches on the ground, which was once something of life. He would, he would come in, and he would topple tables. We said that already. He would, he would come in, and, he and others would, would challenge him and his authority on things. Asking, what about taxes? What about these things? People testing him and prodding him and poking him. Jesus telling people that that he's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it. And even in Matthew, there's this story where the Pharisees are talking to him and Jesus says to the, actually to the chief priests and the elders that sinners and tax collectors are going to enter the kingdom of God before they do. Hmm. Maybe the story didn't shift as quickly as I thought. Jesus was constantly poking and prodding the other people, getting them to think a little bit differently, putting people into uproar, and then during those times, he would just leave. It would, it would be like he'd disappear. He wouldn't be captured. He would go away. And he went away with his disciples to be alone with them in an upper room. And he washed their feet that we talked about last week. He instituted communion, which we participate in every month. And then he headed to a garden to pray by himself, just him and his disciples. And that's where we're going to we're going to catch up with this story. Luke 22, verses 39 to 53. 
Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about one stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts. And you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. That first verse that we read, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. A little bit earlier in the book of Luke, it talked about how Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem, would often, almost every night, go to the Mount of Olives to pray. So if we think about this of what's going on, Judas had left to go talk with the the people and get some silver and so on, but Jesus still went to a place that Judas knew he would go to. Okay, So Jesus still went to the normal place he was going to do every evening so Judas would know likely where Jesus would be when he would betray. And so the rest of the disciples, other than Judas, go there with Jesus. And Jesus asks him to pray. Unlike a lot of the other uh, Gospels, the stories in all the Gospels, the other ones focus on the disciples and how Jesus keeps coming back and they keep falling asleep. This one only talks about that once. But what it does say twice is that he wants his disciples to pray that they will not fall into temptation. Perhaps another way that we could say pray that you will not fall into temptation would be to pray that they would be able to escape trial. Temptation, we often say, are trials that come in our life. And so he wants the disciples to pray that they can escape whatever trial is coming their way. But 
sounds rather of an odd thing for Jesus to tell the disciples to pray for, given what's coming, maybe. Pray that you don't fall into temptation. You know, Jesus knew that the entire history of, of Israel and uh, the entire world was going to have to pass through some moments of terror, some moments of darkness, some moments of tribulation, we call them, to, to be able to emerge on the side of God's kingdom fully realized. They, they needed to go through some trial to get to the other side of, of where they were going. So perhaps that's, that's what he had in mind. Pray that you can get through the trial. Pray that you, you can get through the temptation. But I think there might be something perhaps a little bit more even localized to the, to the time period and to the, to the, uh, to the day that the disciples were going to have to go through. Oftentimes when rebel leaders were captured, it wasn't just the rebel leader that was taken. They would, they would attempt to, to gather up all of the people who were following or disciples of that rebel leader so that way they could, they could take all of them together, they could torture them, and they could kill them all. So perhaps Jesus saying, pray that, that you may escape trial has a little bit different meaning. Pray that you will not fall into temptation has a little bit different meaning because if all the disciples are gone, the message of Jesus would seem to not go on as well. Jesus knew that he alone needed to take upon the punishment that the disciples weren't going to be able to be a part of it. They couldn't do what he could do, so, so why would they need to be captured? Why would they purposely seek out to defend Jesus when he's the only one that can do it? Pray that they would escape trial. We know of, of one person who couldn't, Peter. Right? Peter was, was always, well not always, three times, pointed out, you were with Jesus. Nah, no, I wasn't. Was that technically escaping trial and doing what Jesus wanted him to do? We give him a bad rap for denying Jesus, but if he didn't deny Jesus, he would have been dead. What does it look like for them to escape trial? So they're tempted not to follow in Jesus' footsteps because their death wouldn't accomplish anything? I wonder, what, what about this escaping of trial? Maybe Jesus knew that, that that's not how his mission was going to go forward, that he, he needed those disciples to escape that trial, to not follow after his footsteps to death on the cross, because that was how the mission of reaching the world was going to happen. That's how people were going to be able to find out about that never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love that God has for them, only by Jesus dying, not by the disciples following in his footsteps right away. 
But after Jesus asks them to, to do that, he himself withdraws. And actually, it says withdraw, but it's actually he's pulled away. Something pulls him away and causes him to leave the disciples and go a, a stone's throw away. You know how sometimes you can pull it together when you're by your friends? You can pull it together for a few moments when, when you're completely emotionally exhausted and you don't have anything left. You somehow are able to, to power through for that one last 10-minute conversation with someone, but then you get down by yourself and you can be honest with yourself and you can really let your feelings out and sometimes you just sob. I think that's kind of what happened here. Jesus perhaps didn't want his followers to know the anguish and the suffering and the difficulty that even he was experiencing. Knowing what was coming, perhaps shielding his friends from knowing how he felt. Is there any other way, Lord? If you're willing, take this cup from me, verse 42 says. But then he ends, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, honestly, away from the disciples, states that he would love things to go a different way. But he also recognizes that God has a unrevealed, perfect will of the way things need to go. Even though it'll involve Jesus' sacrifice, even though it may involve our own in our own life that we sacrifice of ourselves to, to follow along God's unrevealed, perfect will, Jesus, when fo faced with this, this decision, says, not my will, Lord, but yours. I'm willing to sacrifice it all because of what comes next. And as Jesus submits himself to God's will, an angel comes to strengthen him, preparing him, making him able to go through what he's going to have to do. Just like that, he heads over to his disciples, but notice that there's another procession coming. And this time, it's not a procession of, of his praises and hosanna and, and exalting Jesus. Instead, it's, it's one of the moonlight glinting off of steel. It's a procession of torches and, that are lighting the way to this dark garden where they're going to capture Jesus. Led by, of all people, one of the disciples. It's interesting how stories change, don't they? Someone who was a follower of Jesus is now the one betraying. And he comes up to Jesus to give a kiss. You know, maybe you know, there's two times a kiss is mentioned in the book of Luke. I'll let you, what's one of the times? Right now, by Judas. There we go. That's one of them. Good. 
The other one, maybe you don't recall. The other one is actually a sinner. <laughs> a sinful woman that kisses Jesus. And it's interesting when we look at these two times Jesus was kissed. One was by a follower of Jesus, a devoted disciple who comes up to give Jesus a kiss, which is really a kiss not of love, but of treachery. It's a kiss that says, this is the man that you want. Hand me my silver. Let me go. While the other kiss is from this sinful outsider, and it goes on to symbolize love and affection and faith. The one who was, was far off from Jesus is the one that shows what love is like, and the one who is close to Jesus doesn't. So Judas points out Jesus, hands him over, and the disciples or the followers of Jesus see what's going on. And the, the words Jesus followers here is, um, it, you could say that. If, if you really want to look at it, it's, it's the people who are standing next to Jesus, the people who are around Jesus. And you assume at this point that they are followers, so there's a little liberty taken there, but that's fine. But then there's this, this question that they ask, which it's a question here, but it's not really a question you know those rhetorical things that often get said that has a question at the end of it, but it's not? The structure of this sentence is not them asking permission from Jesus. Should we strike them with our swords? The followers of Jesus are thinking, desperate times call for desperate measures. Now is the time to act. This is a call to act, not a question to Jesus. And, and, and they're like, you know, we need to do this. We need to, we need to act. We need to break out our swords and protect Jesus and cause this not to happen. And so Peter slices off someone's ear. The disciples were informing Jesus what they were going to do, and then they acted upon that. Maybe that was the temptation. Pray that you may escape temptation. It kind of bundles all of that thing together, doesn't it? If, if they're going to act and have uh, some type of military action going on, they're, they're playing into the hand and, and being tempted to do so to pry, try to protect Jesus for something that he didn't want to be protected from. Perhaps that was... That was the temptation because then they would all get captured and then they would be put to death and, and Jesus is going to have none of it. He's, Stop it! I think here's the thing that's interesting. Even when faced with a difficult time period, Jesus chooses God's will and, and not his own. Even when there's this sword fighting going on, Jesus chooses the way that he had been preaching about the entire time. 
Jesus didn't come as a military dictator. He came to preach peace to those who were far off from God, to show grace and to show love and to show mercy. And even in the midst of this sword fighting, Jesus tells them to stop, and he still is the Savior who is the healer. He still takes time knowing that his purpose is restoration of people to take time and to heal an ear of the high chief, high priest servant. In a desperate state, in a desperate hour, Jesus was still fulfilling his purpose of restoration. Knowing he was faced with death, he took care of another injury. Jesus didn't respond with the phrase, desperate times call for desperate measures. He responded by fulfilling his purpose. And then the disciples responded. You can see they responded by fight first. And then they responded by flight And I wonder, to take this into our life, when we're in these desperate spots where the story is, is changing in our life, where maybe someone turns our back on us, where things don't seem to be going the way that we had anticipated them, what, what's our response? Pray that you would flee temptation. I wonder if it's our own temptation and our selfish desire that would, that would cause us to fight. Cause us to fight against whatever it is that we're experiencing. That if it's someone who turned our back on us, well, man, we're going to let them have it anytime we see them. Or maybe it's when something doesn't go our way, we're going to find out whoever did that and we're going to let them have it, not caring who gets in our way as long as we feel justified at the end of it. Or maybe it's flight. Maybe instead we just try to run away from all of those problems, all those things that make us feel uncomfortable, all those things which are frustrating to ourselves. Or do we, do we have the presence of mind to recognize that fight or flight or any of those things perhaps are not the best way forward? Where instead, we ask God, hey, God, give me strength to avoid the temptation of my selfishness in my way and in wanting to do things my way, like breaking out my sword. And instead, give me the strength that I can go through whatever you've got for me. Jesus, just like he wanted the disciples to make it through those times of temptation where they could break out their sword and defend him, break out their sword and and help Jesus from being captured to realize that's maybe not 
what we're supposed to do. Because Jesus wanted his disciples to go on like the book of Acts says, to administer his healing graces to people who are far off from God. And we see that a variety of ways. We see it how they healed people, how they preached Jesus' message of resurrection and salvation, and thousands of people would come to know Christ. As they, they were a part of God's restoration and healing, rather than being those who are causing hurt. And I think that's what Jesus invites us into. To be people who don't cause hurt, who don't leave difficult situations, but instead face them head on with the Spirit's guidance that we could find a way in each and every situation to, to administer the grace of God. To administer His mercy. Because Jesus came that we would have restoration of life that's, that's physical, that's mental, that's spiritual, that's emotional, that's our whole life. He wants to see restoration. He invites you to push aside your own will and to follow Him. And I think we see it. I think we even still can see physical healing, just like Jesus reached and touched the person's ear. Maybe you or I don't touch people and they automatically become healed, but in the last couple of weeks, we were praying for Ethel Baum's brother. And the doctor said that his recovery was nothing short of a miracle. And there's perhaps other times, too, where we thought someone's health condition was going to be different, and yet we were part of praying with and for administering the healing graces of God. It doesn't happen every time. Perhaps, too, it's, it's being present and willing to help people when they need to be emotionally healed, where you can sit with them and just sit as they unload it all upon you and you give grace and you give mercy by bearing their burden, by, by bearing their anguish and pointing to Jesus in the process. Because that's what he came to do. He came to give restoration. He came to take on our burdens that we would feel lighter. That's what he invites you to do, to give over your burdens to him so that you may help those who are burdened no longer carry them. To push aside our selfishness, our own will, that we wouldn't be tempted to go that way, that instead we would be tempted, or not tempted, that we would be guided by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, just as Jesus was empowered by the angel, to care for others, even when we ourselves are in desperate situations. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be people who 
are overflowing with your grace that we cannot help but love and care for others even when we ourselves are in desperate perhaps situations when we ourselves are, are frustrated, when we ourselves are disappointed, when we ourselves aren't having the day that we anticipated having, give us your grace that we can continue living lives of mercy and love towards all the people that you bring in our path. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.